Okay, our time in the Word tonight is going to revolve around the questions that were turned in this morning, this being our Bible Question and Answer Sunday. So take your Bible with me now as we prepare to look at the questions that were submitted and uh, see if we can work through them. And uh, several of them, as as is always the case, would require a very lengthy answer, much more detail, but hopefully at least a few thoughts that would sort of prime the pump and you can then take it from there and uh, go ahead and uh, research it from there to wrestle through the issue. All right, first question says this, uh, back some time ago, a child asked what you meant when you referred to Shekinah glory. I had no idea what was meant by that. Can you explain? And that comes out of, of course, the Old Testament and the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel where they were led by a pillar of a fire and a cloud, and it would move whenever they were supposed to move. And so that is the reference, and I, I referenced that this morning, saying that in all likelihood the, the illusion in the ascension that is described in Acts 1, that Jesus was taken up in a cloud, all, probably was also an allusion to that same type of thing. So that's what we're referring to. Uh, it comes out, it's an Old Testament concept. It comes out of the Old Testament when the children of Israel were wandering and being led, being led by a pillar of fire and by a cloud. Uh, next question says this. This goes all the way back to Genesis. Did Adam and Eve understand the phrase, you will die? You remember that was a part of God's warning. Don't eat of the tree. In the middle there, uh, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Uh, some Hebrew scholars believe that the best way to translate that would be dying you will die. And so did Adam and Eve understand that? Well, probably not in its entirety. Uh, they, death, we know from Romans chapter 5 that when Adam and Eve sinned, death came into the human race. Death came into the picture. Uh, before there was sin, there would not have been death. And so it was after sin that death came. So they had nothing to compare it to. You will die. What does that mean? Well, even though they didn't understand fully what it meant, uh, they knew God was prohibiting something, and they knew God was saying there'd be consequences. So even though they didn't understand, uh, they understood enough to know that it's something they should not have done. And of course, they didn't take heed to that, uh, and the result was the fall. Uh, next question says this, does God the Father love us as much as he loves his Son? You know, whenever I get a question like this, or just questions in general, immediately I try to think of passages. Is there a passage that would say yes or no, or that would give some insight as to how to answer, rather than just sort of arbitrarily saying, well, it's my opinion, you know, I think, etc.? And so as I thought through this, p- passages that talk about the love of God and God's immense love for us, God's love for his son, I couldn't think of any that would make that same exact connection. So I'm not sure it's really the best way to try to grasp the love of God to say, does God the Father love us as, as much as he loves his son? I think it's better just to take what Scripture says, that God's love for us is immense. And in fact, in 1 John, God is love. It doesn't even say God loves. God is love. That's what he is. That's who he is. And so in a sense, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing your question, but almost in a sense you could say it may not be fair to ask the question that way. I tried to think of a parallel of sort of like if someone were to say to me, well, Brian, do you love your two grandsons as much as you love your kids? Or do you love your kids as much as you love your grandsons? Well, that's, you know, how do you even 
quantify that. It's not the same. It is different. I mean, now that we're grandparents, it's a, it's a love that's, you, you know, it's, you, you never thought you could love uh, like you loved when you had your kids. And those of you who are parents understand that. You thought, never knew you could love like that. And then you have grandkids and you think, wow, it's not that I love them more, but it's just, you know, how, again, how do you compare it? So maybe it's just as unfair to try to say, does God the Father love us as much as he loves his son? There's obviously an extremely unique, uh, one-of-a-kind relationship between the Father and the Son, which is, by the way, be, what is behind the term, the Old English term, that has sort of stayed in most of our modern translations, and that is the term only begotten. It's really probably not the best term, but it's sort of stuck, and it's sort of stuck in theological phraseology and stuck in our translations. But only begotten almost sounds like, well, Jesus was the only Son that you know, God produced by way of some kind, you know, he had a baby, and, and, which obviously is, is completely unbiblical. But the Greek word there, monogenes, that's translated only begotten, carries the idea of uh, one of a kind, just totally unique. So there is a unique relationship between the Father and the Son, Jesus. You might find it interesting to note that in John's gospel, there is an occasion in John chapter 5 where it says, the Father loves the Son, and contrary to what we may assume, if you know any Greek, uh, probably there, if there's one Greek word that most Christians know, even if they don't know any Greek, it's the word for love, which is the word what? Agape. And that's the word you would expect there. The Father loves the Son, agapao. It's not the word that's used there, shockingly. It's actually the Greek word phileo, which is the word more for friendship, companionship. So we could almost say, that, though this is poor terminology, God not only loves his son, he really likes his son. And that's, a, again, a very insufficient way to say it. But it just emphasizes sort of the fullness of color of the love that the father has for the son. So I'm not sure it's completely accurate question to ask, does God the father love us as much as he loves the son, any more than it would be fair to ask a, a grandparent if they love their grandkids as much as they love their kids or vice versa. All right, next question says this. Um, I have heard some Christians say that it is wrong to forecast the weather because we're not trusting God then. What do you think? Well, my first response would be not at all to be snarky about it, but if someone said that to me, I would say, can you give me some chapter and verse on that, right? I mean, rather than putting you on the defense, you've got to ask, answer their question. Why don't you ask them a question? What chapter and verse would you base that on? Or what passage? Uh, furthermore, I was thinking as I was thinking through this question, I read through this afternoon, Acts chapter 27, the story of Paul going on the ship to Rome. And if you remember that story, uh, they decided to go even though Paul said, you know, I'm concerned with the weather. And then paraphrasing, he didn't say exactly this way. But I'm concerned with the weather this time of the year that we're not going to make it. And they ignored him, of course, because who is this guy? He's just a prisoner. We'll trust the captain and all the other experienced seamen. And they said, we'll go. And, of course, it turned into a disaster. They should have listened to Paul in the first place. But I just found that an interesting passage because there was Paul saying, I'm not sure at this time of the year that the weather is best for sailing. And if you study back historically, that was bad time to be sailing. The weather was not conducive to sailing that time of the year. It was, it was very risky. So Paul even was sort of forecasting the weather, saying, guys, I don't think it's wise for us to take this journey. And he was right. So <clears throat> I doubt anyone would say Paul was not trusting God 
by giving that advice to them. So, uh, yeah, I don't think that Christian, uh, you know, you've heard some Christians say that it's wrong to forecast the weather. Uh, I'm not sure how they would try to defend that biblically. All right, next question says this. Um, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, but I struggle to live as a Christian. I want to pause there and say welcome to the club, right? I mean, that's all of us. Uh, uh, we all struggle. Um, then it goes on, the Christian life I see around me seems a little fake, and I don't really connect with it. Now, let me pause. This is sort of a several part, so let me just pause and comment on each one. And uh, let me comment on that. The Christian life I see around me seems a little fake, and I don't really connect with it. And I guess if we were having a conversation, I would say to you, you know, it is certainly possible that, unfortunately, uh, you have people around you who know Christ or claim to know Christ, because maybe they don't really know Christ, and they're not really sincere or genuine in their devotion to Christ. That's, that's unfortunately a sad reality, all too common. The Apostle Paul even acknowledged that in 2 Timothy 2 when he, he used this illustration. He said, but in a great house, and he's using an analogy of the family of God, in a great house there are some vessels of you know, clay and, 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 and dis, for dishonor and some of... Uh, vessels of honor. In other words, he's saying even in the family of God, some Christians really live their lives in a way to honor the Lord and others frankly don't. I wish it weren't that way, but you know that. You know that there are people who know the Lord or those who claim to know the Lord and they just don't live a life that honors the Lord. It's a sad reality. So maybe you say the Christian life I see around me seems a little fake. I don't really connect with it. Well, sad reality is maybe some Christians around you or Professing Christians aren't living the way they ought to, which is why Scripture often exhorts us, Hebrews 2, looking unto Jesus. He's our model. He's our example, not the Christians around us or professing Christians around us. But also, if I were having a conversation with whoever wrote this, I would say this. Now, are you, are you saying to me that every Christian you know is fake? If so, if that's what you're asserting or claiming, uh, I think you need to do some heart searching because surely you can find some Christians who are real. And so if you're, if you're asserting that every Christian you know around you is sort of fake, I'm going to say that there's, the, the problem is not so much with the Christians around you, but there's probably something more in your own heart because it is very easy when we don't want to live for Christ to justify that in our mind and make excuses by saying, well, everybody's a bunch of hypocrites, Right? Haven't you heard that one before? Well, I don't go to church because everyone's a hypocrite. Well, the fact is everyone isn't a hypocrite. There are a lot of people in the family of God who are very sincere, very genuine, very committed to Christ, and it's real. So if you're saying to me that every Christian you know is a phony, I'm going to say I think the issue is more in your heart than in theirs because there are genuine Christians who aren't playing games. They're real. They're, they're sincere. So you need to wrestle through that. Next part of this question says, most uh, of the people I'm comfortable with are non-Christians. They seem more real. Well, again, I would say this, nothing wrong with having friends who are non-Christians. Nothing wrong with having a lot of friends who are non-Christians. You just have to ask yourself, uh, you say, you open by saying, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. Then are you standing for the Lord before them? Who is influencing whom? Fine, if you say most of the people I'm friends with are non-Christians, well, are you standing for Christ before them? Are you influencing them or are they influencing you? Nothing wrong if the majority of your friends are non-Christians as long as you're taking a stand. But if you're allowing them to sway you, 
Now, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And the Proverbs are full of verses that warn about associating with, hanging with the wrong kinds of people. So again, you have to do yourself some, some hard evaluation when you make this statement that, you know, the most people I'm comfortable with are non-Christians. They seem real to me. So is that just sort of a, a facade so you can not take your own walk with Christ seriously? Are you really serious about your own walk with Christ? Uh, if so, then all of these non-Christians that you feel have a good friendship with, again, that's great, then how are you standing before them? How are you representing Christ before them? And then the last sentence says, how can I follow Christ when I don't connect with Christianity? Uh, again, I think maybe I've answered that just to say, uh, find the right kinds. If, you, if, if the Christians around you really are disingenuous, and that's a possibility, then uh, I would say find some who are genuine. In fact, let me take you to close out this question to 2 Timothy 2. I alluded to it. Just turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and look at Paul's instruction here to us. He says in verse 20, but in a great house, now this is his analogy or his illustration, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also some of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. He's saying that's the family of God. Some live more honorable lives than others. Some don't honor the Lord the way they ought to. Therefore, verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, do you hear what that's saying? In other words, even in the, you not only have to be wise in the friends you make with non-Christians, Listen, beloved, you have to be wise in the friendships you make with Christians. With Christians. Hang around the right kinds of Christians. If anyone cleanses himself from the latter, that is, the vessels of wood and clay, the ones that are dishonorable, that don't really honor the Lord. If anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So how can you follow Christ when you don't connect with Christianity? Well, take Paul's advice here and sanctify yourself, I mean, uh, uh, separate, cleanse yourself from the latter and find real, genuine, godly Christians that you can associate with. Now, I'm not telling you to, you know, diss and, and, and remove all of your non-Christians, friends, or get rid of all of them, not at all. Uh, but just be honest with yourself, very honest with how you are doing in taking a stand with them. And if you are, more power to you. Keep those non-Christian friends and be salt and light to them. All right, next question says this. Uh, what happened, this is coming off of last Sunday's message in Mark, uh, on the resurrection, what happened to Jesus between his post-resurrection appearances? You remember last week I said we have 17 recorded post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Some on resurrection day, some during the 40-day post-resurrection ministry, and then several appearances of Jesus from heaven after his ascension. So if Jesus was here 40 days, and we only have recorded about you know uh, a dozen or less of them, well, that's a long time, right? That's a long time to be here 40 days and only have 12 appearances to people. So the question is, what happened to Jesus between his post-resurrection appearances? Is it one, we don't know? And yes, that's basically the answer. But two, was he invisible to us? Possibly. Look at what he did uh, with the two on the road to Emmaus where he just disappeared out of their sight. And not only that, where he comes to the disciples in the upper room and, and the statement is made, the door was shut well, of course the door is shut. Well, why would the author make that comment? The implication seems to be Jesus didn't come through the door. The door was shut and Jesus just appeared to them. 
Uh, Was it possible that he ascended and descended between heaven and earth? No, I don't think so in light of what we saw this morning. The ascension is such a key event in the ministry of Christ that there weren't these multiple ascensions. He did go to the Father, not bodily, in his spirit at the end of his death because his last statement on the cross was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But then he came back in in, in, in his resurrection body, entered his body and was raised, And that's why he told the ladies, don't cling to me. You remember him saying that? Because I have to ascend to my Father. In other words, don't hold on and think you can keep me here because I have to ascend. So I think we can rule that one out, that he was ascending back and forth. Uh, Was he in hiding? Nothing in Scripture would indicate that. No reason for him to hide. Uh, People did not recognize him. That's a possibility. And even the question was asked, you know, why didn't he appear to some of those who did not believe in him. And I think we have a clear answer of that. The same reason why he didn't come down from the cross when they said, oh, if you're the Christ, come down and we'll believe in you. Really? He raised Lazarus from the dead. And rather than believing, they said, we've got to kill Lazarus. We've got to get rid of the evidence. Too many people are believing in him. So if he raised Lazarus from the dead and people didn't believe, it didn't matter what he did. And then we're right back to Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus where Jesus said, listen, if they don't believe uh, Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe they'll one rise from the dead. So Jesus had no reason to show himself to unbelievers, to skeptics, uh, to those. Now, he did show himself to, First uh, Corinthians 15, to his own half-brother James, which would indicate that it wasn't that James was just a defiant unbeliever, but he, he couldn't wrap his mind around, couldn't accept that my brother's the Messiah? Really? How could that be? There there seemed to have been just some reluctance, some confusion, and Jesus did appear to him, and the implication is that's what caused James to believe. But determined unbelievers, Jesus had no reason to appear to them. All right, next question says this. If we we were to say that, that unknown to us, the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, and that's a phrase that comes right out of 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, If we were to say that unknown to us, the great gathering together into Jesus in the air was happening next week, and I have three children under the age of five, would it be unreasonable to hope or believe that our kids would be gathered with us? Well, it certainly wouldn't be unreasonable to hope or even to believe, but uh, down at the end of your question, you say, I don't know that there's an answer to this. I just wanted your thoughts. (laughs) You're right. if, If Scripture doesn't say it, we're just sort of grappling. So... Uh, you, you, the next part of the question, if they, were, uh, if they were gathered, would it be ridiculous to believe all children not yet at the age of accountability might be taken also? And by the way, this is an issue you have to wrestle with regardless of your view on the timing of the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air. In other words, there's the pre-trib rapture view, the mid-trib, the post-trib, which basically connects the great gathering with the second coming of Christ. So don't think, well, this is some silly question about the rapture. It just shows how silly the rapture is. Listen, it doesn't matter what your view is. You still have to grapple with this issue because Jesus is coming back. And 1 Thessalonians 4 says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So that event is going to happen. There's no question it's going to happen. The only question is the timing of it. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. So you still have to, you know, don't dismiss this as a silly question because regardless of what you believe about the timing of the rapture, it's going to happen, even if you call it the same thing as the second coming. So it's understandable, again, as a parent, 
if you have little ones that you're grappling, when Jesus comes back, the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, and this great event occurs, how does it affect children? And the answer, as you indicated at the end, is that Scripture just doesn't address it. Other than we can certainly say, uh, as Abraham said, all the way back in Gen- Genesis, shall not the judge of the earth do right. We don't ever have to wonder if God's going to do the right thing, if there's going to be a mistake. So God won't make a mistake. Okay, next question says this. Um, why do many churches, including Grace, use grape juice instead of wine for communion? I did a little research and found that the switch from wine happened during Prohibition. Uh, was the change therefore due to cultural reasons? Is it wrong for some churches to still use wine? I would like to know your thoughts. And let me answer the last question. Is it wrong for some churches to still use wine? Absolutely not. There's no question. There's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, you may want to try to build a case that what Jesus used in the first century, the fruit of the vine, was at least fermented to some degree. Because there was no refrigeration, uh, immediately once they squeezed the grapes and made it into grape juice, guess what started to happen immediately? Fermentation. The only issue was how fermented was it? You know, an hour, a day, a week, a month, or whatever. So I understand why some Christians want to say that the, the wine in the first century was completely non-alcoholic, but the fact of the matter is you can't defend that biblically. Uh, now, you, you can, if you, re- I've done a lot of research on this actually, just because just out of curiosity. It is fascinating to go back and research the cultural issues, and they did because wine fermented so quickly, especially in the Middle East, where it's so hot, it was very common for them to cut it. They would cut it in half, sometimes as much as in fifths, because they realized, you know, this is fermenting fast, and uh, if you drink too much of this, it's going to have the wrong effect. Which makes sense why in one of the pastoral epistles, Paul talks about not lingering beside wine. Because if you stay with it too long, it's gonna, you're going to violate Ephesians 5, which says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So, all that to say that the wine that was in the first century, you can't say it was all grape juice. None of it was alcoholic. That's, you can't defend that biblically. But... Some go the other way and say, oh, it was all wine, so we, it ought to be just like the wine today. No, it wasn't just like the wine today because they cut it. They would weaken it because they recognized what they were dealing with. So in answer to your question, is it wrong for some churches to still use wine? Absolutely not. Why do some churches not? I can't speak for all, but my guess is uh, some don't simply because, uh, be, because there are those probably in every church who are saved out of a variety of lifestyles. You remember 1 Corinthians, Paul says, and such were some of you. You used to be this, you used to be this, you used to be a liar, hip, you know, you used to be adulterer, fornicator, etc., cetera, uh, a drunkard, and probably out of deference to those who are saved out of that lifestyle, you don't want to give any reminder or, or provide any type of stumbling block, etc. So it's like, okay, we're still using the fruit of the vine. If we use grape juice, we're not using Pepsi you know, or Fanta Orange or something like that. It's still the same thing, uh, but it's just not going to cause a stumbling block. So, but again, I'm not at all fighting for or vying for using grape juice over wine. I've been in a lot of settings uh, where wine was used and a lot of settings where grape juice was used. It's still the fruit of the vine, and that's what was used for Passover. It's what should be used for the Lord's table. And if a church wants to go with wine, more power to them. If a church wants to use grape juice, I don't know that biblically you can make a big deal out of either one. 
Our next question says this, is there any historical record of Barabbas other than biblical references? I don't know of any. Now, I know of a lot of movies that will tell you about Barabbas uh, because there are all sorts of, it seems like he's been the most popular one down through the decades to make a movie about since he was sort of the one, you know, the substitute in reverse. Uh, He got away Jesus, you know, the crowd called for Jesus instead of Barabbas, etc. Uh, but I don't, I don't know that he's referred to in Josephus or in any Jewish writings or anything else. Now, he may, but I, I've never run across it through the years, so I don't know of any other references to Barabbas outside of Scripture. All right, next passage. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, And this question says, um, with the child dedication and not baptism, there seems to be confusion about what baptism is. Can you survey the way the word baptism is used? Does it always mean water baptism? For example, Romans 6, Colossians 2. Uh, But what is difficult is the passage in 1 Peter 3, which we'll look at in just a second. Can you Please explain how baptism is being used here. Well, uh, the reason I had you turn to 1 Corinthians 12 is because this is one of the key passages in all of Scripture on the topic of baptism. Because let me just answer the question, then I'll give you some examples. Let me answer the question by saying this. Uh, It is absolutely certain that the word baptism is used in a variety of ways in the New Testament and does not always refer to water baptism or immersion. All right. Since the word baptizo and the shortened form babto, those Greek words mean to dip or to immerse or to dunk. Actually, those words were originally used in the circles of cloth and dye. They were used to refer to cloth that was immersed in dye so that it would take on that color, purple dye or whatever the cup. Uh, that was the, the, the term was baptizo, to to dunk it into, to immerse it into, or babto. But of course, because that's what happened with baptism with believers, it became sort of a, for lack of a better term, a religious word. And unfortunately, it's such a uh, controversy in Christianity that most of our English translators don't want to translate the word for us. So they don't translate it, they transliterate it. They say, we're not touching that with a 10-foot pole because of all the differences within Christianity. So instead of translating the word baptizo or babto as immerse or dunk or whatever, they just transliterate it as baptize. Well, that doesn't tell you anything. A bunch of chickens, you know, translating. They won't just come out and translate the word. But the word means it originated with immersing cloth into the dye so that it would take on the color of the cloth. So... Uh, the, the word is used in a variety of ways, but one of the key ways is 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, now notice, key statement in the New Testament on spirit baptism. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink of one spirit. In other words, two things going on there. We have been made to drink of one spirit. That is, the spirit has come to indwell us, but also the spirit has baptized us into the body of Christ. So let me ask you this question. How do you get into the body of Christ? The New Testament is clear. You get into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit baptizing you or placing you into the body of Christ just like a piece of cloth was placed into the dye. That's how you get into the body of Christ. 
And so there are several passages in the New Testament, way more than most people realize, that talk about spirit baptism. So that's one way the word is used, of spirit baptism. Of course, another way, a very common one, is water baptism. There are many passages about water baptism. Uh, but there's even other ways the word is used. If you back up two chapters to 1 Corinthians 10, in the early verses of this chapter, we read this pretty ironic statement in verse 2 that of the, the people of Israel, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, that's an interesting use of the word baptized. It obviously uh, is not referring to water baptism here because it wasn't the children of Israel who got wet in the sea. They went through on dry ground. It was the Egyptians who got wet. They got covered up with water. So here, Paul is using the word in a different way. Baptism to be connected with Moses. They were connected with, they were joined to Moses. And that's very similar to how he uses it two chapters later. And by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That was, we are linked to the body of Christ by spirit baptism. Now, you mentioned 1 Peter 3. So turn over with that as background to 1 Peter chapter 3. And in light of that, what kind of baptism, I'm going to just read the verse to you. You you decide for yourself what kind of baptism Peter is referring to here where he says this. In verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. So what saves us? Baptism. You say, hold, this is really getting confusing. Baptism saves us? That's right. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The Holy Spirit baptizing us into the body of Christ. That's what saves us, by placing us in Christ. You say, are you sure that's what Peter means? That he's not talking about water baptism? Let's let him answer for himself. The very next phrase. Not, please hear me, Peter's saying, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. I'm not talking about being dunked in water. Water baptism doesn't save. But spirit baptism does save. Because spirit baptism is what places us into Christ. So in 1 Peter 3, 21, Peter says, baptism saves us. And by the way, he's been talking about Noah and the ark, and it's just a fascinating passage. I don't have time to go into all of it. But again, if you, do, if you follow Peter's logic and argumentation, he says here that these people, Noah and his family, the eight people were saved not by the water. They were saved from the water. If they had been immersed in the water, they would have died because everyone that got dunked in the water died. So they were saved not by the water. They were saved by the ark. And in the same way, we are saved by being in Christ. And how do we get to be in Christ? Baptism. But not water baptism. Spirit baptism. So when you see baptism in the New Testament, always have to take the statement in its context and let the context give you guidance as to how to take it. Because a lot of times it's referring to water baptism. A lot of times it's referring to spirit baptism. And some of the times, like 1 Corinthians 10, it could be using the word in a completely different way and not even be talking about Water baptism or spirit baptism, but a, an identification or a linking or a connection. And so uh, Colossians 2 talks about a spiritual circumcision and a spiritual baptism, which, by the way, is a passage that a lot try to use to say, well, just as in the Old Testament babies were circumcised, male babies, at eight days of age, therefore children should be baptized at eight days of age. But if you look at Colossians 2, it's very clear that there is a spiritual resurrection talked about, a spiritual circumcision talked about, and thus, to be consistent, it is a spiritual baptism being talked about, not at all a reference. You have to read infant baptism into Colossians 2.12, which sadly a lot do. 
All right, next question is Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, verse 3 says, um, or no, verse 4 is he chose us. Well, I'll begin reading verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. So the question is this. Is this a spiritual state we receive in Christ through justification or something we strive for, that is, to be holy and blameless? No, in this context, as Paul is talking about the work of the triune God in our salvation, what they have done for us, which is why he opens it by blessing God, blessed be the God and Father, you were on the right track by saying, is this a spiritual state we receive in Christ? That is what he's referring to. Now, it doesn't rule out that because this is true, we should also... Uh, desire to be holy and blameless, but in this context, this is talking about a positional holiness and a position of blamelessness before God with a view to, in other words, the Bible often always talks about because you are holy or because you are sanctified positionally, seek to be sanctified or holy practically. All right, next question uh, says this. What role does fasting play in the life of a Christian? Jesus says, and here the, the, the question is quoting from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, when you fast, you remember he says, when you fast, don't disfigure your face and, you know, anoint your head. Don't, don't go around, you know, just looking downtrodden like you're so spiritual because you're fasting. So Jesus said, when you fast, and then he gave his instruction, which is very important. I'll come back to that. Jesus says, when you fast, as if it was a practice of believers. Should we fast regularly? Should we fast when we need clarity and understanding? So, a couple comments here. You are correct that Jesus says, when you fast, because the assumption of Jesus is that there will be times when we fast. So rather than him giving instructions on how often we should fast or when we should fast. He never does that. In fact, you may find it interesting to know that the Bible never does that anywhere. The only commanded fast in all the Bible, the only commanded fast in all the Bible is to the Jewish people in, under the Old Covenant on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That's the only day they were commanded to fast. Now, in addition to that, the Jewish people added a lot of other fasts. They have, if you know about, even to this day, the Jewish calendar has a lot of fasts, but... The only one God commanded was Day of Atonement, the most holy day of the year for Jewish people, Yom Kippur. Now, it was assumed that they would fast at other times, just like Jesus assumed we would fast at other times. So in answer to your question, should we fast regularly? You may or you may not. Again, because Jesus didn't give any instruction on that. Nowhere does Scripture give any instruction on it. It doesn't say do it once a week, do it once a month, do it at least three times a year. It just says when you do, Here's how you need to do it. Uh, so should we fast when we need clarity and understanding? You certainly can. Uh, you can you, fasting is often associated in Scripture with times of grief, uh, times of uh, severe, uh, just severe, overwhelming uh, catastrophe. Uh, it is uh, in seeking the Lord's favor, favor. I can remember a couple times just come to mind that uh, stand out where I fasted. I fasted. Uh, as a young person, to determine where the Lord would want me to go do my schooling for ministry. felt like it was that important of a decision that I would fast for a while just to say, Lord, give me clarity. And then I fasted in trying to determine to, to make certain if it was the Lord's plan for my wife 
and me to get married. And so I fasted for a while leading up to that decision. So uh, again, do you have to fast before you get engaged? No, absolutely not. Do you have to fast before you go to Bible school? No, I just in my own life felt that I wanted to, needed to. And that's why scripture doesn't say this is where you have to fast or how often. But it says when you do, don't announce it to everyone. So that they say, oh, you are really spiritual because you, you know, you're going without food and you're fasting. Just do it between you and the Lord. And Jesus said, the Lord who sees in secret will reward you. All right, next question is this. Go to Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27. And then when you're there, we'll read this passage. And I'll also read one from, uh, from Acts because the question is, Uh, on the combined accounts. So Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5, these verses describe the tragic end of Judas Iscariot. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He said, what is that to us? You see to it. And he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. So that's what uh, Matthew says. Uh, Acts, Dr. Luke says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, now this man, or actually this is Peter talking, this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. So the question is, there are two completely different versions of what happened to Judas Iscariot. Matthew 27 and Acts 1, can you explain how he really died? Well, uh, the answer, notice that in Acts it doesn't say that's how he died. It just tells us what happened to him. Matthew tells us how he died. Matthew says he hanged himself. That's how he died. But after that, either the rope broke or as they cut him down, I mean, we're not told the details, but when he came down, he came down with such force that he burst open, his entrails gushed out. But you say in your question, there are two completely different versions of what happened. No, not necessarily. That's an assumption. Uh, the two can very easily be merged. It would sort of be like this. If I told you that uh, so-and-so was in a very severe traumatic car accident uh, yesterday, and as a result of the trauma, not the injuries, but the trauma just of the he died of a heart attack. So if someone said to you, you know, uh, Paul died in a car accident, would that be accurate? Yes. If someone said Paul died of a heart attack, would that be accurate? Well, which was it? Well, it was both. They're not mutually exclusive. He died in a car accident as a result of a heart attack. How did Judas die? He hanged himself. But somewhere in the process, either as he was being cut down or the rope broke or whatever, then this happened to him as described in Acts chapter 1. Our next question is Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22. This is a really good insight, I think, on this question that the person asks. Uh, Revelation 22 tells us that there will be no more tears. Actually, uh, Revelation 21, verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And the person reading that says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So the question is, when God wipes away our tears, what does that mean? Why will we be crying in heaven? Will it be because of lack of rewards or lack of, you know, our our failures, lost loved ones? I think it's a really 
Uh, we don't know. The answer is not given to us. Again, if you can't state it from Scripture, you just have to leave it there. But I think it's a good insight that there is at least the possibility, there's the possibility that on the onset of eternity, if you will, that God will need to wipe away our tears. And maybe for some of the reasons you mentioned. Maybe lost loved ones. Uh, maybe because we look back on our lives. And remember, at the judgment seat of Christ, it is not a judgment of our sin. It's a judgment, an evaluation of our lives for reward. Uh, but it's certainly possible that if we look back at our lives, that there could be some regrets. Like, Lord, I could have, I could have been more focused. I could have, done, you know, etc. So uh, I, I'm not going to pretend to give you the answer, but I think it's a good insight that I don't know that we can state dogmatically that there will never, ever be any tears in heaven. What the promise is that God will wipe away their tears, and from that point, there will be no more crying. So what the tears will be from, we're not stated. Of course, the other possibility is just that the wording is such that saying God will wipe away every tear in the sense that every past tear is gone and wiped away, and there's no crying once you reach eternity. So that's a possibility as well. But I don't think you can rule out either, either view. Okay, last question of the evening. Let's turn to, for this one to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And this question comes off of uh, the message this morning or part of the message this morning. Uh, and uh, I won't be able to answer this in the detail it needs. So whoever asks this, I'll, I'll give you sort of some uh, little homework to, to pursue if you really want to pursue this in greater detail. Uh, it says this, Can you please explain the biblical position on tongues and how they are associated with authentication of the early church uh, in connection with the apostles? All right, so someone's wrestling with, I mentioned this morning that the purpose of the sign gifts was to point to the message, to authenticate the message, uh, etc. So how does that work with this gift? Very good question. Uh, in, in the beginning, let me just say this, because I'm only going to be able to give about five or six minutes on it. If you want to pursue it in, in more detail, you can go to the website and you can consult either a message that's titled, What About Miracles, Healing, and Tongues?, which deals with all the sign gifts, or specifically, if you want to consult the message out of the 1 Corinthians series on 1 Corinthians 14.22, which is where I'm going to land here, you can then have a lot greater and more in-depth treatment uh, to your question. But I want to look at 1 Corinthians 14.22 just to answer it in summary here in closing tonight. 1 Corinthians 14.22, a fascinating passage on the issue of the gift of languages because, now please catch this, this is the only stated purpose for the gift of tongues in the New Testament. This is the only stated purpose for the gift of tongues in the New Testament. Now, did the gift serve other purposes? Yes. On the day of Pentecost, uh, they spoke in languages, and this got the attention of the crowd. So God used it as an attention getter, and Peter preached to them, and 3,000 were converted. So could God have used it, and maybe did God use it in other ways? Sure. But all I'm saying is, if you're going to be thoroughly and specifically biblical, this is the only phrase you can find anywhere in the New Testament that makes an exact stated purpose behind tongues. And what does it say? Therefore, tongues are a sign. Remember, it's exactly what we saw this morning, are for a sign. Not to those who believe, 
but to unbelievers. So Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 14, 22, that the purpose of this sign gift is to unbelievers. Now, what unbelievers does he have in mind, and what kind of sign? What are we talking about here? Well, back up, because you know the, the important rule of Bible study. Whenever you see a therefore or wherefore, you need to stop and see what it's there for. So Paul has just quoted something up in verse 21. In the law it is written, and he's quoting here in verse 21 out of Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. And if we had time, we could go back there to see the context of this quote. But in the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. Now again, if, if you, you go back to Isaiah, basically what Isaiah is saying is this, I am bringing judgment on my people Israel, and here's how they will know that judgment is coming. When they begin to hear other languages, then they should know judgment is coming. Okay? So God warned his people Israel that judgment is coming by other languages being spoken around them. Paul takes that verse and draws this conclusion. Therefore, tongues are a sign. A sign of what? Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. A sign of coming judgment for unbelievers. What unbelievers? For unbelieving Israel. So let me state it very clearly. The gift of tongues was a sign for unbelieving Jews that judgment was coming for refusing to hear God and embrace their Messiah. And judgment came in A.D. 70 at the hand of the Romans, just like it came from back in Isaiah's day from the Assyrians and from the Babylonians. It eventually came. So in summary, I would say this, and again, the, the message on this passage, if you go back to the First Corinthians series, I develop it in a lot more detail. But just in summary, I would say this. What Paul is saying here, better yet, what the Holy Spirit is saying here in verses 21 and 22 is this, that the purpose for the gift of tongues in the first century was a sign to unbelieving Jews that judgment is coming. And it came. It came in A.D. 70, which begs the question, if the gift of tongues was for a sign to unbelieving Jews that judgment is coming, and judgment came in A.D. 70, you no longer have any specifically, scripturally stated purpose for tongues. Because this is it. It's the only statement in the whole New Testament that gives such a definitive purpose statement. So, again, your question is, can you explain how the biblical position on tongues and how they are associated with authentication? Yes, the gift was a sign gift to warn Jews that judgment is coming, which is exactly what the apostles proclaimed, especially to the Jewish people. If you don't repent, you will fall under the judgment of God. And how, what backs up their message, what proves that their message is right, or what authenticates their message, to use your term? This sign gift authenticates that they're telling the truth, that judgment is coming. You better listen, because the apostles can verify or authenticate their message of judgment on the Jewish people by virtue of this unique sign gift. And so that's the role that this gift was to play in the first century. All right, great question. I know, again, that's five minutes instead of 45 minutes, but if you want to go back and consult the, the message on this text, it will give a lot more detail. All right, let's stand as we close Father, thank you for uh, such a great Lord's Day. Thank you for a chance to be together as your people this morning, this evening, the events of the afternoon as various groups got together for uh, whether it be for times of prayer, support for our outreach partners and uh, the, the Global Outreach Committee having an opportunity to talk through a number of things and, and to further get to know the Standriches and their ministry there in Rome. We thank you for connecting us with them and them with us. And we, we say that same thank you for 
all of our outreach partners. What a privilege uh, we consider it to be able to be a part of their lives as they are, in a sense, an extension of us, whether they're in Africa or Europe or South America or Russia or wherever they happen to be, uh, just the opportunity to partner with them and and, uh, see your work go forward. Thank you for a great Lord's Day. Uh, Dismiss us with your blessing, and may we go forth from here to be salt and light to those around us. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.